This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hey everyone, welcome to the Mind Valley Podcast. Our guest today is someone I am so excited to have on the podcast because I could really, really, really use his advice right now. Here's what's going on. As you know, I'm an author and my last book, The Code of the Extraordinary Mind, just hit something like 25 languages and last year was the number one book globally on Amazon. So I'm super proud of that. I'm super grateful to you guys for helping make that book the success it is. But here's the downside. I now have to write a book every two years. And my next book, I am ridiculously behind. And so I am in a bit of a pickle right now. I'm going through some stress trying to get this next book together in time for my manuscript to get to Penguin, my publisher. And if you happen to work for Penguin and if you could give me even a little bit of an extension, of course, that'll be appreciated. But there is an art to writing a book. And when you understand this art, getting a book out no longer becomes this monumental task. It becomes significantly easier. And Tucker Max, who is our next guest, is one of the champions of this art. Tucker has some ridiculously amazing accomplishments. Firstly, he has written three New York Times bestsellers, which have sold over 3 million copies worldwide, including a book called I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. Now, that itself isn't the biggest thing I want to draw your attention to. Tucker is the third writer, only the third writer after Malcolm Gladwell and Michael Lewis to ever have had three books on the New York Times nonfiction bestsellers list at the same time. He was nominated to the Time Magazine 100 Most Influential List in 2009, and he has a BA from the University of Chicago, 1998, a JD from Duke, and lives in Austin, Texas with his wife, Veronica, and his son, Bishop. So Tucker is a highly celebrated author, a man who has really figured out how to write best-selling books and produce these books with an ease and a flow that I guess anyone who wants to write a book would love to master. And that's going to be the topic of our conversation today. We're going to talk about how to get your book out to the world, how to write your book in record time, how to take something as monumental and complex as producing a book and drill it down to the essence so you can hack it. If you've heard me talk about minimum effective dose exercise, think of this as minimum effective dose applied to becoming an author. Tucker, welcome to the Mind Valley Podcast. Thanks, Vishen. Thanks for having me. So many questions I'd love to ask you, Tucker. But, you know, I'd love to begin with what you're doing right now because you run a company called Book in a Box, now called Scribe Media, and you basically help authors get books out. I'd love for you to tell us, how did you end up in this position as a coach to authors? So I was at an entrepreneur event and this woman came up and asked me, how could she write her book? And I was like, well, you sit down and write it. You know, I kind of gave her the lecture that all writers 
kind of give, you know, you open a vein on the computer, et cetera, et cetera. And she's like, look, that's not possible. I have a family. I have a really successful company. I have hundreds of people who work for me, et cetera, et cetera. I don't have time to sit down and do this, but I have a great book in me. So how can I get it out without having to do all that? And I looked at her. I'm like, are you asking me how to write a book without writing it? And she's like, yeah, kind of. And so, of course, I, like being the elitist, snobby writer that I was at the time, I started making fun of her and like called her out and all that sort of stuff. And she rolled her eyes at me and she's like, Tucker, this is an entrepreneur event. Are you an entrepreneur? I'm like, yeah, of course. And she's like, yeah, I don't think so. Because if you were an entrepreneur, you'd help me solve my problem and not lecture me about hard work. And she was totally right. So I became obsessed with this idea. How can I get a book out of someone's head without them having to spend thousands of hours at a computer? And so like it hit me about two months later. I'm slow. It takes me a while, Vision. But about two months later, I realized that scribes had been doing this for thousands of years, right? Like Socrates never wrote anything down. Plato did. Jesus never wrote anything down. The apostles did. Buddha never wrote anything down. His disciples did. And Malcolm X and Marco Polo and go down the list of great minds in world history and new scribes. So I, for the first time in my life, you know, at this point, I'd written five or six books. I wrote down every single step of writing a book on a whiteboard and it took up like a wall of whiteboard. And I realized you need to write it for the most important part, which is the content, but not everything. And so that's only about 40%. So I told her like, let's get on the phone. Let me interview you. I'm going to interview you in a very systematic way and we'll get the book out of your head. And it was very important to note here, like she didn't want a ghostwriter and I didn't want to ghostwrite this book, right? Because her book was like about something pop-up retail or something. I don't know. I didn't know anything about that. I'm not going to learn about it. So I'm not going to come up with a book for her. It's got to be her ideas and her words and her voice. And so I didn't think it was going to work, Vision, honestly, but it worked great. And then she started referring people to me and me and my co-founder, and we just kind of started doing this. And we really developed this process. And now it's about four and a half years since then. And we've helped about a thousand people write their books, including people like David Goggins and Tiffany Haddish. And David Goggins, his book was amazing. You helped him write that? Yeah, we've helped them with the writing and publishing. Yeah. Now, I did not know that you were involved in David Goggins' book, but I had declared David Goggins' book as one of the top five best personal growth books of 2018. Yeah, I would say ever, maybe. <laughs> it was amazing. That too, you know, I've gotten to know David. He is really like that in person. Like, there is no difference between the book David and real life David. <laughs> I know, I know, because I met the real life David. I interviewed the real life David on Mind Valley Mentoring, which is my coaching program, and it was amazing. But I'm curious. Your whole process is about speaking out the book. So did you and your team simply interview David for like seven hours and pull this out? So we have two processes now, honestly. It's not just speaking out the book. Because what we realized, and it took us about two and a half years, a lot of people really want their hands on the keyboard. They want to go through the process of typing the book out. But they still need a structure and a process. So we first built our structure around interviewing. And then what we realized is we can use the exact same structure and people can write their book. So we now have two programs. Either we interview you and get the book out, which is what David did, or you come to a workshop and we walk you through the exact process. We help you do the positioning and the outlining in the room, and then you go home and you write it out, and then we do the editing and publisher. That's really, really, really cool. Okay, so there's a bit of a process that you've shared with us, and I'd love for you to walk us through this process. So the people who are listening to this podcast get a taste of what they could go home and immediately start implementing. Yeah, right. I'll walk through our exact process vision. And then at the end, I will give you a link you can give to your readers where they can download our book for free. That basically will be more in depth of what I'm going to explain. 
So the first thing you have to do when you're writing a book is you've got to understand really three things. What are your objectives, right? What are you trying to accomplish with the book? First, what do you want your readers to get? And then second, what do you want to get out of it? And that can go a lot of ways, right? But the more honest you are with yourself and the more clear you are with yourself, everything else kind of falls into line. If you're really honest, okay, my readers are going to get X, Y, Z, and I'm going to get A, B, C, right? So first objectives are clear. Once your objectives are clear, then you should be able to understand exactly who your audience is. Like, who are you writing this book for? Even though the book may even be about you, the thing to remember with a book is that it's never for you. It's always for the reader. And so you got to really understand who that audience is. And then the next step is deeply understanding why that audience is going to care. A lot of writers forget this. They'll have a good book idea or they get obsessed with some idea. They get fall in love with an idea. And it might be a great idea, but they don't ever think through why anyone's going to care. Or they think the audience they want to hit is not the audience that will actually care about their book. And so it's really important that all four of these things fall together. What's your goal for your audience? What's your goal for yourself? Who is that audience and why will they care? In the book, we kind of really talk deeply about this. But once you understand that, that's basically the positioning of the book, right? And so from there, why the audience would care is in effect the book idea. So you should be able to then explain very clearly what you're going to say in the book. And now you know the book you're writing. What you just said is so profound. I got to ask you a question about it. You said you got to figure out what the book is about and why the audience would care. Okay, but how do you know if you've nailed that? How do you know if the audience is really going to care or if you're just making this up out of your enthusiasm? It's a great question. It's a fantastic question. So generally speaking, if you have not trained or coached or helped or in some way facilitated people in the audience with accomplishing sort of the goal of the book, which you're teaching, it's tough to write a book about it, man. And I'm not saying you can't. To be very clear, I'm talking about nonfiction books right now, obviously not fiction. And I generally, the books that we help people with tend to be prescriptive nonfiction. So they are how-tos, teaching something. They're in some way sharing knowledge and wisdom. A memoir can share knowledge and wisdom, but a lot of times, those are very rare, man. And I feel like a little bit of a hypocrite saying that because I wrote memoirs. But if you read my memoirs, they weren't actually about me. They were about entertainment, even though they seem like they're about me. And same with David. David's book had a strong memoir component. But when you read the book, you feel like he's talking to you and he's helping you with your problems. So David's book was called Can't Hurt Me. And for those of you who haven't heard of David Goggins, he is the toughest man in the U.S. military. And he was the first ever guest to be invited twice on Impact Theory. Me and David share that record. He's a remarkable, remarkable speaker. But why would the audience care? I mean, the average person in the audience, David's audience, isn't training for the military, isn't training to go to Afghanistan, isn't training for an ultra marathon. What is it about that book that taps right into what the audience cares about? So David's very clear. David has developed a mindset that is so strong and so effective that he's able to use it to run 150 mile races and pass SEAL training with literally broken shins and do all this incredible stuff. And it's like, if that mindset can help him do that, I mean, that can help me do anything because I'm not trying to do crazy stuff like that. Basically, he's teaching the mindset he used to become one of the toughest men on earth. But the crazy thing is it's usable by anyone. So if you have to say why the audience should care about his book, how would you say that in like one simple phrase? How to develop a tough mindset? The way I would probably phrase it, like if I'm talking about David's book to other people, the way I talk about it is I say everything you hate about yourself that's holding you back 
this man will help you be it. Mm -hmm. Right. No, that's very, very, very true. Okay, so I wanted to just go deeper there because that was a very important message. And you know what? Coincidentally, yesterday we did something fascinating in our company, inspired by David's book. And I had no idea with this call today that you were the man behind that book. 15 men in my company decided to skip their lunch hour. So they had an hour for lunch. They decided to just skip lunch and instead compete to do 500 push-ups each, to push past the barrier of pain and do 500 push-ups each. They called it Goggins Hour. <laughs> that, that, that's very David Goggins, yes. And, you know, it's beautiful just to see people do things like that. He really pushes you past those limits. Okay, so Goggins aside, the point is your book must be able to add incredible value to the audience. It must be something that people care about. So that's part one. So once you understand your positioning, you really got to dive into the author avatar because that helps you refine it, right? So you take the audience from the positioning and then you go down and you do an avatar technique, which I'm sure you understand in marketing. You pick a name or a composite of a person. Let's say you're a health and fitness coach. Pick someone who is the exact perfect client for you and then give them a name and then tell me about their life. And so like, what are they like? What are they dislike? Where are they trying to go to? What are their hopes and dreams? All that stuff. Then you need to dive really deeply into the pain that is in their life because they have not yet read your book, right? So maybe they're overweight or they eat poorly or whatever and like all the problems that causes in their life and all that stuff. The more granular you can get with their pain, the better. And then you talk about what is going to change in their life because they read and implemented your book. It's not about your book at all. It's they're going to lose 20 pounds. They're going to feel better about themselves. They're going to finally find a girlfriend. They're going to finally you know, do this and this and this and blah, blah, blah. And so then what you've done is you've essentially created the hero's journey for the author. And what this does is it makes you really focus on your reader because a lot of people, when they come to writing a book, they see it emotionally as kind of a validation and a crowning moment for them. And so their instinct is to make the book about them. But what we tell our authors, and we're kind of harsh about this, is that no one gives a damn about your book. They only care about themselves. And they don't care about you or your book. They only care about themselves. And that's not a bad thing. That's how we all are. But if your book accepts that and recognizes that, and you frame your book around helping them, then you're going to get everything you want. Because your book is so helpful to them, they're going to love you. They're going to recommend your book to their friends. They're going to maybe buy other coaching programs, whatever it is you're doing. But you've got to start from the place of complete service to your reader. And that begins with deep understanding of your reader. Got it. And I love that line. People don't care about your book. It's nice to think they do, but everyone is really, you know, motivated by how your book is going to enhance their lives. Awesome. That's a great reality check. Okay. So you start with the big why of your book. Like, what is this book going to serve to the world? You established a customer avatar. Now, what do you do? So once you have your avatar, the next thing we do is we get you to write out your book description. Most people want to start with their idea, like, here's what my book's about. We actually like to go the other way. We start with the objectives, why you're writing the book and who it's going to help. Then we go to audience. Then we go to idea. Because if you get to idea third, now you really understand who the book's for, why they're going to care, how it's going to work in their life. You understand all that sort of stuff. So it's really easy to kind of write, you know, the book description you see on Amazon. We don't ask people at this stage to write it sort of in marketing copy, but kind of the rough version of what that book description is. And it's very simple. It's just, you know, what does the book say? Who's going to care? Why they're going to care? It's kind of repeating a lot of the same stuff, but we have a lot of checks in to make sure everything's flowing together. 
and, and that level, you got to write it out. But that's usually where people will then kind of go off the rails and they'll start talking about themselves. And it's always been my dream. And I was a young child and said, no, 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 stop. It's not that your story can't go in your book, but it's that no one cares about your story until they know why the book's going to help them. They want to hear your story in the context of the book, not when they're trying to understand that they even want to read it. And so that's what we really help people get refined in the third stage. I see. Got it. So it's the content. Okay. And then? Once you're done with that, you should have really the positioning of the book done. So now what we do is we go into brainstorming chapters or brainstorming, like really kind of figuring out what's going to be in the book. But we start high level. Like you don't really need to go super granular because at this point, if you're doing a nonfiction book, you should know what you're trying to teach and who you're trying to teach it to. So then the next step is essentially walking through, okay, how would I teach this to them? And there's a lot of different frames you can use to brainstorm. The two that we recommend the most are teaching a workshop. Probably people listening to this podcast are teachers or coaches in some way. And so you probably have one day, two day, three day seminars. So you can think about if my book were a seminar, how would I structure it? And that essentially becomes the chapters. Or the other even simpler way to think about it is imagine that your best friend has the problem that this book solves. And they come to you for help and you've got a full day and you're sitting down over coffee. Where would you start? And then what would be step two and then step three and step four? Because if you think about it, if the frame is I am teaching someone or some group of people, then everything about the book flows naturally. It's really simple. And I found this tip to be really useful for me. So I speak around the world and every time I speak, I test out new ideas and I test out new speeches and essentially over a period of three or four years, my best speech and the best ideas I test within that speech, and you can, of course, gauge from an audience's reaction, right, are what become the bulk of my book. Because I know it's tested right. and people love this and respond to this and need these ideas. So I always go from speech to book. Yeah. Most of the clients that we work with, the ones that hire us, are people who have been teaching or helping people or training or whatever for usually at least a decade. I mean, some maybe five, six years, but they've helped a lot of people usually. And so they know their content well. They know what they're trying to say. They just don't know how to write a book or how to structure a book. And so once the brainstorming is done, once you kind of understand your chapters, then we have a very specific chapter format that we have people use, right? Which basically starts with a hook. Like what's the thing that's going to lead the chapter that's interesting? Whether it's an interesting line, a fact, a question, whatever. Then we kind of go list out what's all the content. That's when you really dive into what's going to be in the chapter. Then we actually have people list out the stories that are going to be in the chapter. And of course, if you wrote a chapter, you wouldn't write all content and then all stories. You want to weave them together. But the reason we have people separate them is so that they can get a clear idea. This is what I'm teaching. Because a story is never information. A story is always a vehicle for information. If we have them list information and then story, then they can then pair up, okay, I have these three stories to tell in this chapter and these 10 pieces of information, I can weave all the information in through the stories and you can understand that way. And then we kind of have the you know summary and segue to the next chapter. And so what this process does is it gives people a very clear, actionable, direct framework where they can organize all their knowledge. So then when they sit down to write, all they really have to do then is just say the things that they've already been saying, teach what they've already been teaching. They don't have to worry about structure or framework. And I love that outline. Okay, so first we establish what the book is for. We've established a customer avatar. Who's going to be the one who's going to be helped by this book? We've created the rough 
outline. And then we go into the nitty gritty of each individual chapter. And you sit, you start the chapter with a hook. And within the chapter, you weave together story and content. You break down the pointers or the knowledge that you have. You pepper it with stories. And that becomes the essence of a chapter. Yep, exactly. Is there an art to getting a book sticky? Because a lot of people buy books. They read a couple of chapters, put it back on the shelf. How do you make a book sticky so people stay with your book? It's such a good question. Yes, there is. We teach this in our workshops and we do this with authors. But basically, I can sum it up for your audience. There's a great saying in screenwriting, come in late and leave early. The more you can have your chapters do that, the better. Meaning it starts almost in the middle of the action, like with a scene or a question or whatever it is. That's what the hook is. The hook is something where it's like, oh, there's an information gap, a curiosity gap is what it's called in the literature. Oh my goodness, this seems interesting. What's going on? What's going to happen next? And so you start in the middle of a story and then there's a lot of ways to do this. So I don't want to say there's one way to write a chapter because there's not. But a lot of the way I like to do it is, and this is what Malcolm Gladwell does very well. He does the same thing. I'll start in the middle of the story. I will give enough background and context of the story to get the person hooked. Then I go into information and I start explaining like, okay, here's what the chapter's about. Here's this. Here's that. Here's why you have to understand this. Then I come back and I kind of deliver the middle of that story that I started with. But again, I jump right into the next section in the middle. So by the time you're halfway through the chapter, you're stuck in the story. You want to know what happens, but everything in the story is related to what I'm teaching in the chapter. And so it becomes really engaging. And so when you have the mix of actionable information with great story, people can't stop reading. Wow. Is there something that makes a story great in a nonfiction book? Yeah, there's a lot of things. So the first thing is, A great story, there's always a level of curiosity. What's happening? What's going to happen? Then there's got to be something at stake. There's got to be conflict. So there's got to be mystery. There's got to be conflict, right? There's got to be something at odds. If there's nothing at stake and there's no set of people trying to get it, either opposed to each other or climbing a mountain, if there's no conflict at all, no one cares, right? No one writes a book like, man, you know what? my guest room is just perfectly set up and it never changes. <laughs> like, who cares? There's no conflict, right? But if you have a raccoon who you can't get rid of and it's like running around the house, whatever, that's maybe a movie, not a book, but there's a conflict, right? And there's a mystery, like what's going on with the raccoon? How, where is, like I have one in my house that's how you know, but like you can't figure out and like all that sort of stuff, right? So there's mystery and conflict. And then for a nonfiction book, the other thing that's got to come in is, We could call it value, but I like to call it personal relevance. Why does this matter to me? Because value, a lot of people get stuck on, you know what your audience needs to know. But a lot of times you're so far ahead of them, you're two or three steps ahead that like they can't understand it from where they are. So you've got to go back and kind of meet them where they are. That's why I don't like to say value. Because a lot of people will write a book and they'll be like, there's value in there. I know there is. This is what I do for clients. They're amazed, whatever. And I'm like, okay, that's great. But if they don't understand that it's valuable, then it's not valuable. That's why I like to say personal relevance. Because then people understand, oh, I've got to meet people where they are. And I've got to make them understand why this matters. Okay, so let me try to put that in context to make sure I understand and our listeners understand. So there is a chapter in my book that's about attracting talent, how to brand your company so you attract talent. And what you're saying is that even though I see value in that, the reader may not 
really care. The reader may think I get more applicants than I need. I hate going through resumes. Why does this matter? And so I would need to establish that value by talking about how when you attract a large amount of talent, you get to choose the best, you get better people working for you, and thus your business does better. Exactly. Dude, I'm with you because before I grew the, our company, I didn't truly understand the difference between someone great and someone even good. And now we're at 40 people and it's like, I'm obsessed with that because I know like that's the thing. That's the thing in any company. You think strategy and tactics and bullshit, it is people. If you have people. great people, all of those come together. Tucker, I want to go back to one thing before that. I love how in-depth you've gone on crafting the chapter, right? But how do we decide how many chapters and how to lay out those chapters and how do we connect between chapters? Yeah. So again, that's a structure. That's an issue that you would deal with when you're kind of building the table of contents and the chapters. With our clients, we'll walk them through this, but I'll give your listeners a couple things. The first thing, in terms of number of chapters, we always get this question, how many chapters, how many words? I always tell people, if you're worried about that, you're worried about the wrong things. You need the minimum number of words possible to say what you need to say. If you can write a book in 25,000 words that has everything you need to say, don't make it 40,000 words because people hate reading things that are too long. That makes so much sense. But why is it that publishers are always demanding 60 to 80,000 words? You want to know the real reason, Vishen? You're going to laugh, dude. Okay, so I'll tell you exactly why. Publishing companies have one client. You know who the client of publishing companies are. It's not readers. Bookstores. Publishing companies sell their books to bookstores, not to readers. So bookstores care about what? Physical retail. Think about 100 years this system developed and bookstores were all physical retail. So what they care about is shelf space, right? They don't want to display books front forward because it takes a lot of shelf space. They want to display them spine out because it means if you're spine out, you can get four books in the place of one face out, right? So you quadruple your inventory. So bookstores demanded from publishers that all books have wide enough spines that people can read the spine. And what that translates into is a minimum of 60,000 words. Dude, how many nonfiction books have you read that should have been half the size? It bugs oh. the heck out of me that so many books are so much longer than they should be. It's a relic of an of a analog physical world, man. But in the digital world we're in now, you don't have to do that anymore. Most of the books that we do with our authors are twenty five to 35,000 words because most nonfiction books should be that size. How long was David Goggins' book? David's was longer. I believe David's was around seventy to 80,000 words. David had the opposite problem. He started with 400,000 words. Like he had written all this stuff. David is a brilliant man. He has five more books coming that are amazing. But no one out there should compare themselves to David. He's a unicorn, man. He's a different dude. That's amazing. So that's a really powerful insight. Love that. Okay, so how do we string chapters together? Is there an art right, form okay. to that? Yes. So we like to tell people generally five to 15 chapters is the norm. If you need more, that's fine. If you want less, that's fine. But if you're in the five to 15 chapter range, you're fine. But the frame is kind of the same as what I told you earlier. These are very simple frames, but it's easy to forget them and not use them. Imagine you're teaching a workshop. Okay, what would session one be? That's chapter one. What would session two be? That's chapter two. And imagine a session can be about an hour to two hours, right? Because you got to have bathroom breaks. You got to have all these sorts of things. And so just imagine you got to have a session completed. So you start at the allotted time, finish at the allotted time, minimum of an hour, maximum of two hours or something like that. What would be in there? There you go. And it's really that simple. Man, I could write a book on chapter theory, but you don't need to know that, man. 
if you just think of it as how long can I teach someone before a bathroom break, then that's going to cover 95% of all people writing nonfiction books. Okay, wow. So useful. Guys, if you're listening and you're finding this useful, please make sure at the end of this interview, you leave a glowing review for Tucker. Tucker, I just want to say I'm really enjoying this. And I, as a New York Times bestselling author, I'm learning tons of new stuff from you. So thank you. You are truly talented. I'm really loving this. Now, you talk about the next step, which is if you can't write the book, speak the book. And you speak of transcribing recordings and you recommend using a service called red.com. Can we go into that? Yes. So for people who don't want to be the one typing it out, because look, I'll tell you what, there's a lot of shame in people. They feel like, well, if I'm not actually fingers on the keyboard, then I'm not an authentic author. That's bullshit. I think that's totally wrong. To say that is to discredit Socrates, Jesus, Buddha. I mean, like we went through earlier, right? Like you're no smarter than Socrates. So come on, man. It is totally valid to speak your book. In fact, if you actually understand neuroscience, the part of the brain that's dedicated to understanding, comprehending speech or verbal or auditory, I think is four or five times larger than the one for text. It is an unusual, difficult thing reading text for humans. Speaking is what we're designed to do. So if you're better at that, that's no shame in that. So there's a couple ways to do it. We obviously offer that as a service, but you can do it yourself. You don't need to hire us. Rev is good. Rev has another sub company that I think is better now called Temi. T-E-M-I dot com. It's same company. It's just different service. Rev will take your recordings and transcribe them for a dollar a minute. Temi will do it for 10 cents a minute because it's AI. And when they first launched it, honestly, Vision, it was kind of garbage. And now it's like a year and a half later and the AI is almost as good as the humans for 90% cheaper. Right. So we actually in our company use Temi now for a lot of stuff. And also, you can hit the FN function. Like if you have a Mac, I'm not sure if PCs have it. If you have a Mac, there's speech-to-text built into your Mac. Hit FN twice, and it should pop up. But I actually use the speech-to-text on the Mac a lot. That's actually how I get my rough drafts for blog posts. It's harder for me for books for some reason because I've just been a writer for so long. But for blog posts now, what I do is I talk out the first draft, and I send it to the guy in my company. He cleans it up, and I edit it, and we go. For a lot of people, that's what I would do. Once you've done your outline, then like study a chapter, understand, okay, even write it on a whiteboard. I'm going to talk about these three things. Think of it like a speech, like either a 45-minute, one-hour, two-hour speech, right? Generally speaking, people will speak about 8,000 words an hour. So let's say you talk for an hour on a chapter. You're going to get 8,000 words. I would assume if you're lucky, about a third to maybe a half of that, if you're a really good speaker, will be usable text. The first time you see yourself transcribed, you're going to think you're an idiot (laughs) because everyone, everyone sounds like an idiot in a raw transcript. Everyone, even good speakers like this podcast. Someone could be listening to this and think it's amazing. If you were to look at just a totally, truly raw transcript, you would think that I was an idiot because that's just the way that speech to text works. So don't be embarrassed. Just clean it up. And then you'll realize, oh, yeah, okay, I get it. My only job here is to translate one medium to another. Don't think of it as transcribing because it's not. I'm translating spoken words to written words because they are different. It is almost like a different language. And if you approach it that way, then it's actually really simple. And for a lot of people, that helps get their rough draft down. We have authors who go through our guided author workshop, which is the one like where they write themselves. They'll get totally stuck. They'll get stuck in their own heads and the fear and all that stuff, which I can talk about if you want. And so what I'll have them do is I'll have them get on a call with me and tell me the first chapter. I'll have them teach it to me. 
And they're like, oh, that was amazing. And I'm like, okay, I didn't tell you this, but I was recording the whole thing. And I send them the transcription and I'm like, that's your rough draft of your first chapter. And then they're off to the races. You know, that's bizarre because I've noticed the same thing, right? Every time I've tried to record a chapter, I get stuck. But when I work with a collaborator and I ask the collaborator to get on Skype with me and I'm talking yeah. to a live living human, everything just flows. Yep. In our interview service, we don't have our authors record into a computer. That's weird. We have our scribes actually interview them and ask questions and kind of frame them as they go. So it's super normal and natural. It's almost like a podcast like this. Like you can't not have a normal, natural conversation. And then the scribe takes that, transcribes it and turns it into prose then shows it to the author. And it's funny because a lot of the authors who work with us in that package, the scribe professional, they think they're these brilliant orders. And then they'll look at the raw transcript. They'll be like, oh my God, I didn't realize how much work you guys were doing. It's like, yeah, it's doable. It's just a little shocking the first time. So now you take the raw audio transcript, which we know is unreadable. And roughly right. you said out of 8,000 words, about half of that or one third, if you're lucky, will end up usable. And you then translate it into what is essentially proper written word. Yep, exactly. You yep. translate the transcription to a book manuscript. Yep. In the book I'm going to give to your listeners, the exact step-by-step -step process is in there, and they can do it themselves. It's not that hard. And then you do the content and the copy edits. Yep, exactly. Is there a shortcut for that for people who hate copy editing? I mean, are there services online that we can use? There's two that are pretty good. Grammarly is pretty good. Again, not perfect, because Grammarly will miss things. But Grammarly will do a pretty good job. And then I actually like Hemingway. Hemingway does a pretty good job as well. I use Grammarly. It's remarkable. It's a Chrome extension that you install on your browser. So if you're writing on Google Docs or even writing an Instagram post or writing just about anything, it's really, really, really useful. Yeah, it is. It's good. Hemingway is good because what it does is it points out like sentence structure problems. Hemingway is like that annoying, pedantic English teacher that criticized everything. When I put myself in Hemingway, it looks like seriously they murdered a cow on it. It's like red lines everywhere. And what I'll do is I don't change everything according to what Hemingway says, but I get it pretty close. Even me, I mean, I've written four New York Times bestsellers and it helps me a lot tighten my writing and get it sharp. Now, how do we find Hemingway? Hemingway app. Awesome. Awesome. This looks really, really, really cool. Wow. So much useful stuff. Okay. Now, next question, right? How do we come up with a good title for a book? Oh, man. So if you Google how to title a book, I'm number two, how to write the perfect book title on scribe writing. I would read that post because Vision, as much as I would love to tell you there's a step-by-step -step process, there's not, man. Titling a book involves a lot of alchemy. But what I did in that post is I kind of walked people through the steps. And the basic steps really involve kind of brainstorming, like what exactly am I trying to accomplish? It's all this kind of positioning stuff I talked about. And so it kind of gives you a good way to think about what a title could be. I tell you all the attributes of a good book title. So a good book title should grab your attention. It should be memorable. It should be informative. Like it should kind of give you an idea of what the book is about. It should be easy to say, because remember, you want your book to spread by word of mouth. And if it's easy to say, it makes it more memorable and it makes it easier for them to say. And then the fifth thing is it should not be embarrassing for someone to say. Like, I'll give you a really good example on that. There's a guy who we worked with a long time ago before Scribe. Basically, he wrote a book. It's a good book. You know the concept of hormesis in biology, right? Where stress helps things grow, right? So basically, his idea was there's, we don't have enough hormesis in our society, and so it's going to cause real problems. And his thesis you know, makes sense, and the book's really good. But he wanted to combine hormesis 
and Armageddon to create a new word called Hormageddon. <laughs> I swear to God, dude, you can Google this on Amazon. It's a real book title. And I begged him. I was like, Bill, no, he's like an old guy, right? And I'm like, Hormageddon is what happens when the whores destroy the earth, man. He's like, no, that's not what I mean at all. I'm like, I don't care what you mean. That's what everyone's going to think. And the book should have been big, man. It is a great book. But everyone under 60 is embarrassed to say, hey, you should read this book called Hormageddon. So not embarrassing to say is really important for a book title. And then I kind of run through in the blog post the steps which are getting clarity in your goals, you know, which we already talked about, brainstorming a lot of ones, making sure someone else hasn't, you know, you don't want to call your book, you know, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. That's obviously already taken. And I'm on that blog post that you wrote right now on uh, Scribe. And holy cow, there's an amazing case study here that I got to share. So you give the example of the 1982 Nora Hayden book called Astrological Love and how it bombed, right? And then you talk about how that book bombed and then... Nora simply changed the title from astrological love to get this people, how to satisfy a woman every time and have her beg for more. <laughs> and it sold 2.5 million copies. It was a huge hit. Your grandparents have that book somewhere in their house. <laughs> That's amazing. I've seen this over and over again, right? Like one of the classics in personal growth right now isn't written by a personal growth legend. I guess now he's maybe a legend, but the book was simply The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. It sold millions upon millions. And then the other book that's really crushing it right now is Jin Sincero's How to Be a Badass. Yeah, that's another one, yeah. Mm -hmm. Girl, Wash Your Face is doing amazingly well. Yeah, no, titles are really important. In the blog post, I list a bunch of titling conventions. There's like 17 different, like, you know, The Art of Blank, The War of Blank, or... Like I go through tons and tons of titling conventions in there too. So it's as really good templates. You know, Vision, here's what I found though, man. I have never so far, I can't think of an example. We've dealt with an author where they couldn't come up with a really good title on their own, especially if they were willing to take the courageous one. Because what happens invariably is someone will come up with a really good title, but it requires a little bit of courage and they'll go with the boring normal title, right? But the courageous title is almost always the better one. And it usually emerges as you're writing the book. You just have to have the courage to put it on like the subtle art of not giving a fuck. That took some courage, right? But it panned out for Mark. So let's try a test, okay? So I have not yep. yet figured out a title for my book. My book is on company culture. It's on creating like yep. really powerful, effective companies where people love what they do and Everyone wants their friends to come and join this company and people stay longer than normal and they produce great work. And if you're the co-founder or the boss, you really start to enjoy life and work while getting great results. So it makes work magical. So the titles we were playing with include things such as the code of the extraordinary team, magic at work, how to create the world's greatest workplace, discipline. Discipline is the discipline of bliss. And there's a couple of others. Are there any that you would immediately toss out? So how to create the world's greatest workplace is a great subtitle. That shouldn't be the title. That needs to be the subtitle. I wouldn't immediately toss any of those out. Depends who your audience is. Blissipline, it's called a portmanteau when you combine two words to create a new one. That could work. I'd be very careful with portmanteaus, though. Like when they hit, they hit really well. But it's like 90% of the time they fall flat. Yeah. 
I would test those, man. Okay, so you talk about testing. Well, I just wanted to share what I did to get my title for my first book, The Code of the Extraordinary Mind, is I came up with 10 titles and I tested them on Facebook. I literally created 10 simple covers, ran Facebook ads, and the goal was to see which ad got the most clicks. And eventually we found that The Code of the Extraordinary Mind got the most clicks, and that's what became the title of the book. Yeah, that makes sense. The Code of the Extraordinary Mind immediately makes me curious, man. Like, I want to have an extraordinary mind. Yeah, no, that's a good one. So that was a really, really, really powerful idea. So we last met at Stephen Kotler's Writer's Workshop, Flow for Writers, yeah. that's what it's called, Phenomenal Seminar. What was the key idea you got in terms of flow for writing? I took some of his ideas and I teach them in our workshop. The big thing that I took from him that really helps people in our workshops is reframing anxiety to excitement and explaining how they're the exact same neurological response, but with a different frame. Almost every new author, when they're sitting down, even either if they're writing their own book or they're having us interview them, or they're just doing it on their own without us, they get very anxious about their book, right? And so one of the big parts that we do in our workshop is we really dive into all the fears that are gonna come up when they're writing their book and then how they manifest themselves and then we kind of walk them through this whole process that's kind of very similar to what Tim Ferriss does with fear setting. And it's a combination of Tim's and Steven's stuff. We help them reframe the anxiety's excitement and we help them like kind of walk through how to think about it, whatever. And it's been amazingly effective at getting people past writer's block because all writer's block is is fear. It's not actually anything about writing. That's amazing. So after you get this done, you're now ready to publish the book. And I'm guessing that's a whole other conversation yes. on how to find a publisher, how to get your book published. So we probably won't have time to go there. That's all covered in the book. I'll give away to your readers. Though. We have a whole section on publishing. Traditional self, how to decide, all that. Go to scribewriting.com slash free book. Awesome. So I know a lot of people on our show today would love to connect with Scribe, to learn more about your services. Congratulations on what you did with David Goggin's book. That was an incredible book, by the way. Thank you. And thank you so much for the advice you shared on this podcast. Gosh, that was a lot of stuff. I'm going to have to re-listen to this and send this to my collaborator because there's so much I know that my book writing team can learn from you. Awesome, man. I'm happy to help anytime, brother. People who want to work with you, they can get all the information on scribewriting.com. Yep. Phenomenal. Thank you so much. This was awesome, Tucker. Of course, man. Happy to help. So guys, if you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review and tell your friends about the Mind Valley podcast. What we try to do to make our podcast unique is rather than treat these as pure interviews, we want to make it so useful to you that even though you're probably listening as you're driving, you got to go back, listen a second time so you can take down notes. If you feel the urge to write down and take down notes, we know we've done a good job. So every podcast seeks to solve a specific problem. And we'll be back with more incredible minds, more great thinkers. So make sure you subscribe. And again, all our authors come on for free and they truly appreciate it when you mention them in a review. So if you enjoyed Tucker's wisdom, go ahead, leave us a review, mention Tucker Max, and don't forget to share this with friends. Thank you all. Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, 
Take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body, your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.